We are reading from Psalm chapter 12, um, which is on page 541 in the Bibles that you've been given. I'll just give you a moment to flip to that. For the director of music, according to the Shimoneth, a psalm of David. Help, Lord, for no one is faithful anymore. Those who are loyal have vanished from the human race. Everyone lies to their neighbour. They flatter with their lips, but harbour deception in their hearts. May the Lord silence all flattering lips and every boastful tongue. Those who say, by our tongues we will prevail. Our own lips will defend us. Who is Lord over us? Because the poor are plundered and the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will protect them from those who malign them, and the word of the Lord are flawless. Like silver purified in a crucible, like gold refined seven times, you, Lord, will keep the needy safe and will protect us forever from the wicked, who freely strut about when what is vile is honoured by the human race. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Hannah. And uh, <clears throat> a shout out to the various people on up, the, up, the, up here today. Uh, not myself, of course, but uh, it's, it's fantastic seeing a number of people who are doing something for the first time up here in our congregation this morning, and uh, we're very thankful for their ministry. My name's Prash, I'm the Senior Minister. Uh, a warm welcome if you're joining us. I see we have people back in the building after a few weeks, uh, months, so it's good to have you as well. And uh, the kids are in the building today uh, because our holiday programs are on hold. Hi, Sam. Uh, it's great to have them in church. It's one of those moments, actually, in holidays where we're reminded uh, that the body of Christ is, uh, is all generations, and uh, you might hear the noise of children today. That's actually a noise of joy, uh, children in the house of the Lord. So we're very thankful for them. I'm going to pray for us before we reflect on that portion of Scripture. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. It is flawless. And we pray your Holy Spirit would apply it to our hearts this morning. And so point us to the Lord Jesus and make us more like him. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We've been in a series looking at the book of Psalms. The Psalms, as Gordon reminded us um, a few weeks back when he brought us back into this series, we dip into it every year around this time, is, a, is the songbook of Israel. It's, it's poems and songs written by various people uh, in the Old Testament a nation of Israel, uh, not just for the individual, but for the, the community to hear and to say to one another, in fact, you'll see in this morning's psalm, the very first things in the psalm are not actually uh, verse 1 that we had read, but actually a direction, which is, that's not, it's in italics, so you might think, oh, maybe that's just something that the New Testament, the English translators have added, a bit of a context setting, a commentary, no, it's actually in the original, and it, it implies that this is actually a song, this psalm was a song. And most commentators think that though the psalm was written by David, he actually wrote it for God's people as they gathered in the nation of Israel 
to sing to one another. Now, here's what's really interesting. This is not the kind of song, we just sang a beautiful song there to start as a, we we sang a joyful song with the kids, then we sang a new song about God's love for us. This is perhaps what we normally consider ourselves singing here in church, but this song starts with the slightly unusual phrase, help Lord. And these are the words that David puts on the lips of God's people as they gather together, singing these words, help Lord, help help us. And it sets the tone for a lot of this song. This song is a song of despair in many ways. David is despairing. He calls out, help, Lord. And it's not what we normally sing, but it's the song that we're asked to sing as we come to this psalm. And David asks us to sing this, or he asks the Israelites certainly to sing this, and he sings it because as he looks around at the world around him, at his experience, at the people around him, the community around him. This is what he says. He says, no one is faithful anymore. Everyone lies to their neighbor. David sees a world which lacks faithfulness, which lacks loyalty, which the, where the godly, he says, have disappeared. And if, when he drills down into it, he says, at the heart of that lack of faithfulness, that lack of loyalty, the disappearance of the godly, is the lies that people speak. Lies. That's what, how David describes corruption. You think about the world corrupted, do you think about lies and deception at the heart of corruption? For David, that's it. And in fact, the power of the psalm is it puts those lit words on our lips It helps us to look at the world and say, this is what the world is, this is what corruption is, that people are deceptive. I don't know if you saw the HBO series on Chernobyl, uh, a reflection over eight weeks on those events of the nuclear meltdown in the the reactor at Chernobyl uh, in Russia. And at the start of that series on Chernobyl, they open with this quote from Hannah Arndt. It says, what is... What is the cost of lies? It's not that we'll mistake them for the truth. The real danger is that if we hear enough lies, then we no longer recognize the truth at all. And so she says, she looks at the world, this this world damaged by, you know, this radioactive meltdown, and she says, what's actually most horrific about the story of Chernobyl, this is what the directors overlay as they quote her, is not just that there's this great cataclysmic ecological disaster, It's not that it displaces people or it damages culture. She says what's most horrific, what they say by quoting her is that what's most horrific about this moment is the way that the truth disappears. And in fact, people become comfortable in a world where the truth is no longer evident. The horror of Chernobyl, according to the series at least, is that people lie and the world around them accepts it. And this kind of horror is what David is seeing. He looks at the world, he sees, people, uh, he sees people being betrayed, he sees relationships falling down, he sees a world where there's blood and violence, but underneath it all he sees a world filled with lies, a world filled with lies. And he puts those words on our lips in this song. But more than that, He says, it's not just the over... Because when you think about lies, when we think about the lies of the world, maybe you think about, you know, corrupt 
corruption, corporate greed. We think about, you know, the, the failure of big business to care for the poor, for the, for the customer. Well, David sees something even more penetrating about the nature of this, of this, of this world that he's in. He says, help, Lord, for no one is faithful in all. Those who are loyal have vanished from the human race. Everyone lies to their neighbor. And then he goes on, he says, they flatter with their lips but harbour deception in their hearts. The Hebrew, which is what the Psalms were originally written in, the Hebrew says they have a double heart. When he says they, they harbour deception in hearts, they have a double heart. In other words, they have one heart which is available to the world and another heart which is really their heart. This is the concept of hypocrisy, which you know, Jesus often speaks against in the New Testament. And so David says, actually, the lies are not just the overt things where we see someone corruptly, you know, embezzling money and ripping off people. He says the corruption goes to the core of people. And this is much more challenging for us because David is saying that actually the corruption is something that though you look like you're a truth teller, actually, you're someone who also lies. You might have the veneer of truthfulness, but you harbour deception in your hearts. You know, I'm at the cafe sometimes, and I'll hear someone saying to another person, oh, I'm working from home today. But of course, they're having a coffee, they're having a chin wag, they've got their computer open, they're logged in, they're not working. We're so good at this. We're so good at living one thing but harbouring something else in our hearts. I go to the local, my kids go to the local public school. Everyone's very nice at the gate. But then you get on the WhatsApp group. That's what people, what people really think comes out. Are you someone who hides your true feelings behind the veneer of kind of electronic communication? Are you someone who's who has all of the graces of kindness in real life, but then when you get down, you write an email, the true you comes out. David says, and he puts the words on the lips of each person who's reciting this song. They harbour deception in their hearts, so that even as they sing it, they feel the, the, the cutting truth about this. We might have managed to present ourselves as people who are truthful. But when we strip it back, when we get past that veneer of religious observance, of, of practice, when we get behind it all, David says, he challenges us, do we have a deception in our hearts? I read a, I read a really interesting uh, article that referenced a, uh, a research paper carried out by National Geographic magazine and the title of their paper was, Why Do People Lie? They said, well, sometimes, you know, you, you, you lie because you, you don't want to tell your kids about something that's horrific going on in the world. And we kind of put that in a different category. But then there's all these other reasons that we lie. This is what they said. They break it down. They said, 8% of people lie because they're pathological liars. They just lie. Like, it's just part of their DNA. Now, I think we're kind of happy with that. We're comfortable with that because we... That kind of makes it almost feel like a, a biological reality for those people. We can medicalise that problem. Uh, but then the other three are a little more taxing. They say 14% of people lie just, to, lie just to avoid spending time with others. Um, a 
I've got to defrost the fridge. I can't see you today. Actually, I do remember a friend using that very excuse. They say 22% of people avoid a lie to avoid exposing personal mistakes. Yeah, I actually stole the cookie from the cookie jar. And they say 16% of people are life, life for economic advantage. I swear the car has never been involved in an accident. You see, that's when you start to think about what's really interesting is people just don't lie because they don't care about the truth. They lie because they want to remain in control of something. They've got a deeper motivation often for lying. It's not just, oh, I think the truth is useless. It's, I think the truth might be okay, it just doesn't serve my purposes here and now. And when we start to think about that, we start to, when we start to just reflect on that a little bit, we start to think, oh, actually, yeah, I've done that. And, and here's what one writer says, kind of building on the, this data. He goes on to say, he says, deep in our souls is the desire to be the masters of our own destiny and truth too often gets in the way. Ever lied because the truth got in the way? What he insightfully says to us is actually, there's a bigger and more fundamental problem there. You want to be the master of your own destiny and your lies simply testify to that. You see, God hates lying. He hates lying. It's a corruption of the world that we live in and of you yourself. But it's not just a corruption because lying is bad. It's a corruption because you are saying you are more important than that person who you're lying to or God himself. And, you know, the, the, author, the psalmist picks this up because he puts... Into the words of liars, these words says, by our tongues we will prevail. You can, you can hear it, can't you? The psalmist is saying, people lie because they think that they're in charge. That they are the, ultimately the source of their security, their comfort, their assurance. By our tongues we will prevail. There's a failure to recognize their place in the world. And see, actually what's most corrupting about lying is not that it just it damages the the social structure of the culture and the community it's not that it results in ecological disaster it's that it's telling yourself and the world and god that you are in charge not him see god says thou shalt not lie it's like the eighth commandment but the reason he says thou shalt not lie in the old testament is because it's denying the, the fundamental reality of the first commandment. There is only one God, and it's not you. This is a psalm which is very challenging because most people are now happy to say there is really no truth out there. You know, there's no truth in the corporations, there's no truth in the structures. Down with CEOs, down with politicians, down with clergy, right? That's the word of our age, right? Because there is, they don't, what, how do they have a monopoly on truth? But the psalmist then challenges and says, you don't have a monopoly on truth either. Because our tendency says, there's no truth out there, but I'll tell you what there is, there's truth here. I'm going to return to me. The psalm 
putting the words on our lips. And in our song says, no, even I, even I am not as truthful as I'd like to think. And even I would sacrifice truth on the altar of convenience or comfort. Even I would sacrifice truth in order to prevail. Now, what's so beautiful about this psalm is, and it's, it's often the pattern of the psalms, is that though we sing about the reality of ourselves, and we sing about it, not because it's something that is to be rejoiced in, but something that needs to be driven deep into us, actually, right? We actually need to go deep down to the core of who we are, and that's what the psalms often do. That's what songs often do. That's why music is so powerful, That's why we value music in the life of our church, because we sing truths into the core of who we are. What the psalm then does is it doesn't just let our deceptive words be something that we have to come to terms with. It replaces it and contrasts it with the Word of God. And so you see in verse 5, as those words of the, the lying individual are uttered, we will prevail they are replaced almost immediately with the words of God. I have heard the grumbling and groaning of the needy. And I will arise, he says. And then in verse 7, the psalmist then puts these words. He's, he's like replacing our words of deception with these words. And he says this, And the words of the Lord are flawless. Like silver purified in a crucible, like gold refined seven times, and he repeats it three times, just so, just as the Hebrew poetry often does, you don't miss the point. You haven't just said it and breezed over it. That's, you know, sometimes in Anglican church life, we say these things, we repeat these things. We do that because we don't want to miss the truth of them. We want to bury them deep in us. We say at the end of our Bible reading every time, this is the word of the Lord, and then we say, thanks be to God. Not because it's just some kind of repetition that will please God, but because it's a truth that our hearts need to hear, and so we just repeat it. There's a purpose for everything we do in our time together, and we say that so that we remind ourselves that God has spoken. And so the psalmist is getting the congregation as they sing this to remember the fundamental truth of the word of God that's spoken, that it stands altogether differently to the words that come from the world or even from your own heart through your lips. These words put on your lips by God are what you should hold on to. That God's word is flawless. That is, there is not even, there is not even a speck of, of brokenness or defection about it. There is no mark upon it that spoils it it is like silver purified he says and it is gold refined seven times the word seven number seven in the hebrew world is like a world about perfection it's repeated so many times in other words that it need not be repeated anymore this word has been tested and tried and proved correct and of course he's thinking partly about the promises of god that you find in the old testament which having been promised are then fulfilled But it's a word of God that has no imperfections in it at all. It is wholly trustworthy. And so one author can say this. The Bible contains truth found nowhere else. Human reason may discover certain truths about God, but the revealed truth of the Bible exceeds these so as to defy comparison. 
One may exhaust the meaning of the contents of other books, but not that of the Bible. Do you understand? What you hold in your hands, hopefully you were given a Bible today, and if you don't, if this, you don't have one, just take that one with you, because we think it's the greatest gift we can give you. Well, yes, it is actually, materially speaking. This book, this Word of God, is flawless. It is not just a better book. It is not just a bestseller. It is not just a widely read book or an ancient book. It is a book that stands apart from every other book because it's the Word of God. And there's a very clear implication for the psalmist if this is true. He says, he goes out in verse 7, I've marked it verse 8 here, but it's verse 7. He says, you, Lord, will keep the needy safe and will protect us from the wicked. And then he goes on in verse 8 to talk about the reality of the world that remains wicked. Here they are, they have sung this truth that God's word is perfect and then they're sent out into the world. The world hasn't changed, but they are changed, you see. They are equipped to live in this world with all its complexity, all its brokenness, all of the lies and deception. They are equipped to persist with the Lord. And so they are safe. And the psalmist wants them to take that truth and live in light of it. Now, I think there's, there's a very clear implication for us. Take the word of God and go out with it. That's why you're here. To be reminded of this, of the goodness of this word, and then to take it and go out into the world. And here is what the word, here's, here's three things I think that you could apply to yourself this week as a response to it. What does it look like to rely on this word, to go out committed to it and confident in it this week? First of all, it means to view the world in light of this word. It is a lens for you to understand the world. Not the world is a lens for you to understand the Bible, which is generally how we, we move. That's our, that's our normal inclination. We open the scriptures and we've got all these other voices in our head and actually, our constant temptation is to read that scripture in light of all those other voices. But actually, if this word that you're reading is actually the only thing that's flawless and pure and perfect, it is the thing that should shape every other voice. That should be the, should be the filter for every other word you hear. Secondly, you need to make your choices as a result of it. Because if it is the only thing that's true, you'd be a fool to make your choices based on everything else rather than it. This is such a great opportunity. This is the great privilege that you have right now sitting in your hands is you have, you have the key to making every choice you need to make in your life. This word is the sure place to go. But of course, if that's true, then the third and necessary implication is you need to read this word and you need to read it regularly. If this is the only thing in your life, not me, but this word that you carry from the Lord is the only thing that is pure and flawless, you need to read it. Why would you spend your time listening to everything else which is marked by lies and imperfections and not read this one thing that is perfect? Why would you fill your ears and your mind with all these other things which at some point, in some way, are not representative of the truth and yet not fill your mind with this word which is perfectly, wonderfully, 
flawlessly true. This is such a great privilege, such a great opportunity. Now, I know it's at this point, it's at this point where you push in to this topic and someone like me gets up and says, the Bible is the word of God and it's flawless, that people start to just think, um, I, was with, I was with you for a long way about there not being truth, and, but I'm not sure. Like the Bible's got a lot of crazy stuff in it. There's a lot of crazy stuff. And you don't even get to the New Testament and the resurrection of Jesus before you get to the crazy stuff, right? We live in a world which is irrevocably marked by the Enlightenment. And there is always a voice in people's heads, and maybe in yours, which says, ultimately what's true is what's proved by science, through the rational endeavour, through the um, exploring of nature and the natural world to determine causable events, right? We live in that kind of world. You can't get me to replace that mindset with the Bible because the Bible has all these crazy, miraculous moments. You're trying to tell me that these things really happened? And so we live in this culture which says science is ultimately the bedrock of everything that's true and real. And it's great that you've got the Bible. And it's great you've got a value system. But really, you can't be telling me that the Israelites walked through the Red Sea. But I want to just push back on that. Because science came into the world. It was something that God created human minds to use for the purpose of observing this natural world. But what you're arguing is that science is, is there to simply describe everything that exists. But it doesn't. It doesn't provide the foundation for lots of things that exist and which you value. For example, you can't use science to establish your mindset about justice. Where do you go? What part of the natural world do you use as your foundation for justice? Because depending on what part of the natural world, the weak overcome the strong or the strong overcome the weak. You have an inclination that the weak should be protected, but most, most species in the natural world operate the other way. But where did you get that from? You have, you have an inclination that love, the love of a parent for a child, is, is this fundamental thing. But where did you get that from the natural world? Did you know that that cute, cuddly polar bear is known to eat its cub? Like... Why, why is your understanding of the love of a parent for a child different and, and super, super, overwhelming, supervening over this kind of this pattern that you find in the natural world? Because science doesn't establish that for you. Why do you have value, even though you may not be the most uh, useful person in a group? Why do you have value in and of yourself? Science doesn't establish that. If you're a strict evolutionist with no kind of theistic understanding, no kind of impact of the gospel, you don't see any value for people who don't bring something to the bigger group. See, my point is, not that science is irrelevant, but the mindset which grounds all of our understanding in truth in purely observable data 
And so therefore writes off the Bible as this place where actually the true, perfect word of God exists. That mindset is flawed. And the scriptures, the psalmist is putting on your lips this morning as you read it, as they sang it back in Israel, this truth, the word of God is flawless and perfect. But he's saying more than that. And this is why actually the Christian message is much more than, hey, here in the Bible is a set of propositions about how the world is meant to be and what you're meant to do. Because the truth of God is much more than simply a list of rules or propositions. So what is the truth of God? When you look at verse 5, the truth of God is that God decides to enter the world. The truth is not a set of statements. It is a promise that comes into action. It is a truth that becomes reality. It is a word that becomes flesh. And when the psalmist calls us to sing, I will arise, God doesn't arise in that moment in Israel, but he's promising a moment when he will arise, when that word will have flesh. And, of course, the gospel writers describe that moment as when Jesus comes into the world. Here's what John says at the start of his account of Jesus' life. He says, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. He's describing Jesus. And he's using the word as a way of describing because he's saying the truth of God, all of the promises of God, have suddenly found their their. their their metamorphosis, their, 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 their change, their catalytic moment here in Jesus, where he's arrived. Here he is with flesh and bones, the truth of God. And we have seen his glory. We have actually seen the truth of God come into the world. There, here he is in this person, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father. And when this word of God comes, not just as propositions, but as a person, it comes with grace and truth. And you see, that is what you need to get your heart around. You need to get your heart around, not just that, oh, the Bible explains stuff that science isn't. The Bible introduces us to the God from which all truth comes, from which everything comes. And when Jesus comes... If he is truly the God of grace and truth, there's a couple of things we, we start to realize as we read his story. First of all, that Jesus is so committed to truth, God is so committed to truth, that he will not lie even when it costs him everything. When Jesus comes into the world, he meets Nathaniel in the first chapter of John's gospel. And Nathaniel says, oh, he's a man without deceit. He looks on Jesus and he says, he's a man who seems to speak the truth. Jesus says, you think that's amazing? Wait till you see the end of the story. And God's truth is not just, oh, Jesus comes and tells us what's true. Jesus will not step back from the truth, is the story of the gospel. Jesus doesn't lie, though it costs him everything. So Paul will say in his letter to Timothy, Christ Jesus, who while testifying before Pontius Pilate, made the good confession. He says, Jesus is there. At the end of the gospel story... At the end of the gospel story, in the trial before the Sanhedrin, and then before Pilate, and each time, it only requires him one small lie to save himself. But Paul says, 
before Pilate, by implication, before the Sanhedrin, he makes the good confession. Because Jesus affirms what the psalmist is declaring about God's word. He is truth, and he will never step back from it, even if it costs him everything. There he is, on the precipice of either the horror of the cross or just kind of continuing on his life. And he makes the good confession. God is a God of truth, and his commitment to truth is most clearly seen in the Lord Jesus and his life. But God is also more than that. See, the wonder of God's truth is that as he comes into the world, he comes to liars and deceivers and hypocrites, and he brings a word of grace, actually. Because Jesus is also full of grace. Jesus is the refuge that extends out to you. And if you see it in the psalm, too, he's just, Jesus is just the crystallization. He's the best picture of what the psalmist is saying about God. Because what does God do in the psalm? He says, because the poor are plundered and the needy groan, I will arise. Because those people need me, I will come to them. Not because they deserve me. Not because they've earned my arrival and saving because they need me. And the wonder of Jesus coming into the world is God is not waiting for you to be a truth teller before he'll come to you. He's not waiting for you to get your whole life in order before he will come to you. He is not waiting for you to get rid of the hypocrisy in your life before he will come to you. He comes to you right now with a word of truth and grace. And while you might look at yourself and the world around you and see all that there is is lies radiating outwards in the cross of Jesus Christ, we see the gracious truth of God radiating out. God is offering to come to you. And the take-home of this psalm, you see, is not start being a truth-teller. It is rather here the word of God who tells you a word of truth and grace. Hear him. And if you're willing to be needy, if you're willing to just say to God, Lord, I'm a deceiver. I'm a hypocrite at times. I don't have it all together. And a lot of these people around me think that I do, but I don't. Guess what? You are the needy. You are the poor. And God will come to you. Now I will arise, he says. So the Lord Jesus does. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the beauty and wonder of your word. It is wholly reliable and wholly gracious to us. And Heavenly Father, we look at ourselves and we realize that there's so much about us that's, that's corrupted, that we will easily trade off truth for a lie if it means that our life will become easier or more comfortable or less difficult. But Lord, the wonder of your word is not just that it's true, but Heavenly Father, you bring that truth of grace and mercy to us in the midst of our hypocrisy. You see our poverty and you arise for us. I pray, Heavenly Father, your Holy Spirit would so convict us 
both of our own weakness, our poverty, our neediness, and the gracious truth of the gospel. And help us to accept it. In Jesus' name, amen.